Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 170 and in this episode I am joined by the CEO at Altis and Sprint Coach Stu McMillan. Stu, someone that I've wanted to get on the podcast for a long time. Um, when I first started the podcast I wrote down a long list of people that I wanted to get on and Stu was right up there at the top of the list. Um, so it's great to finally get him on the podcast. We touched on loads of different areas. We started speaking initially around finding your purpose as a coach, some good discussions around that. And then obviously getting someone like Stu on, we had to touch on speed development. So we spoke about some of the common questions that get posed to him from uh, coaches that work in team sports. We talked about speed development for team athletes. And then we spoke about some of the his recommendations of um, where your time should be spent in terms of speed development in different situations. So part-time and full-time program, senior or development or academy ages. And, and Stu gave some great advice on that as well. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation. We covered much more than what I've just said as well. So loads of great information in this one. Um, and yeah, big thank you for, to Stu for coming on the podcast. Just before we get into the episode, I just want to announce that we have got an upcoming networking event at Everton. So it's going to be at Blue Base, Everton in the community on Wednesday, the 16th of February, 6 till 9pm. And I'm delighted to say that we've got three brilliant speakers for the evening. We've got David Flower, Senior Sports Scientist at Everton, Lewis Charnock, who's Academy Performance a psychologist at Everton, and also James Malone, Senior Lecturer in Sports Science at Liverpool Hope University. So if you want to get a ticket for this event, Wednesday the 16th of Feb, 6-9pm, just head over to our website, footballfitfed.com, click the shop, and you can get yourself, as this podcast goes out, there's early bird tickets available. Remember, community members get discount, they get further discount on the tickets, so go to um, the network meeting tab on our community if you are a community member and you'll be able to get the discount code there. I'd also just like to say a big thank you to our sponsor of the podcast, Blackbox Fitness. Blackbox are the world's best training equipment, accessory and apparel brand. Blackbox believes that training isn't just a checkbox on your to-do list. Training is a lifestyle, continually seeking your highest performance in the gym on the pitch, at home, and in everyday life. To perform at your best, you need the best, and Black Box has you covered. So go and check them out on social media at Black Box Fitness, and that's spelled B-L-K, box, and then fitness. Big thank you as well to Rezzel, who also sponsored the podcast, another brilliant company. Rezzel is the world's leading cognitive training platform for sport, by using VR technology, Rezzel and Player22 can create game-style scenarios and recreate pressure to help you prepare for the real thing. So big thank you to Blackbox and to Rezzel for sponsoring today's episode. Let's get into it now though. Episode 170 with Altis CEO and Sprint Coach Stu McMillan. Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 170. I'm delighted to welcome onto the podcast a guest that I've wanted to get on probably from the start of the podcast, Stu McMillan. Stu, how are you? Yeah, not so bad. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. And I've um, not mentioned your role because I'm sure many of the listeners probably know what you do currently, but CEO Altis, Sprint Coach, 
Um, and I'm sure, and, and I know actually, a lot of the listeners have been through the Altis programs. They've gone through some of the courses. So it'd be great to tap into some of the work that you guys are doing. Obviously, following on from the episode I did with Nick, when I can't even remember what that was, a few months ago. Um, so quite a nice transition from that one. But yeah, I really appreciate you coming on. What I wanted to ask to start with was, I'm sure a lot of people, including myself, know what you do currently. Can you give us a little bit of background? We've just been speaking, actually, before we started recording about your time in England, but a little bit of background on yourself that led up to your role. Yeah, um, first first of all, thanks for having me on. I know we've been trying to do this for a while, so it's uh, apologies for for making you wait for so long. It's been a busy a busy couple of years, I think, for everybody, right? So glad to, glad to be here finally. Um, yeah, I mean, it's been a long and and uh, and windy road, as they say, right? I'm I'm in my fifties now, so I've been doing this for for uh, for a minute. Um, I grew up in the UK. My dad was a coach. He was a pretty high level athlete, so I sort of grew grew up in a sporting family. Um, he played football in in Scotland, and he was also played for the county in badminton. So I started, you know, I play, you know, grew up as a footballer in badminton and, and squash player. And then we moved to Canada when I was uh, just about to turn 12. And again, he was, uh, he continued actually coaching over in Canada in football. Uh, I was starting, I continued playing over there. Uh, he became the coaching coordinator of a local club and uh, hired me as one of his coaches. So I actually started coaching football when I was 14. Um, and, uh, you know, 38 years later, here I am still coaching. Um, some some days I, I wonder why, but I'm I'm still here, still doing it, and you know, thus my last few emails. If you've seen it, I know that's one of your questions that you want to get to a little bit later about purpose and why we are doing this. And I think uh, you know, the longer you are doing doing it, the more you'll start to ask those questions of yourself. So it's uh, I'm looking forward to getting into into that. But um, you know, I the you know from there I have a typical story really of most coaches. Um, I was a failed athlete. I couldn't couldn't make money doing it. I think I made $75 in my entire football career. I, I, you know, so that was not some. quite a, <laughs> not quite uh, the return on investment that you would like, but um, yeah, I was, I was an okay athlete, but not good enough to really continue on to the professional ranks. And I got into coaching. I was really interested in why people were good at what they were doing first and foremost, not necessarily into the strength or power or speed yet, but you know, just how, how people learn and how people get better at what they do. Um, so that's, that drove me into, you know, really starting to look into things and into, you know, whether it would be motor learning or how people get faster, or how people, you know, get stronger, or how people get, you know, uh, can endure more work. And then while I was doing that, um, you know, it's, you know, so at the end of my, my football career, actually, I was a pretty fast football player. Um, generally the fastest on the field. And I had a lot of friends who were, who were sprinters. So when I stopped playing football, they said, well, you should come out and, and start sprinting with us. Because if you know, I was only 22 or 23 at the time, and I didn't feel like I wanted to stop playing sports. So I went out and started sprinting. And I found out really quickly that I was a very fast footballer, but not a fast sprinter. There's a very, very big difference, which has you know, colored my thoughts to this day still. So uh, I found out really quick that, you know, a sprinting career wasn't going to be for me, but I got really interested in speed. And um, within about a year or, or two, I started coaching myself. I started coaching a group of other sprinters, having some success around that. 
Um, and that sort of led into, into what I did for the next um, almost 20 years in Calgary, in Canada. And I was just fortunate at the time that I was, you know, in that time and place, uh, the Canadian Sports Centre was getting set up. There was a lot of really smart sports scientists around, a lot of really uh, driven young coaches around that got pulled into that system. And I started working with them and spent the next uh, 15 years, uh, you know, diving deep into, into uh, speed, power and, and strength. And then um, had the opportunity to move over to the UK in 2010 to work as part of the UK athletics setup leading into the London Olympics. Learned a ton there for three years, really enjoyed my time uh, over there. Had a great group of athletes to, to work with and uh, a great group of coaches and, and other, other support staff to work with there. And that sort of led into a few different opportunities after the London Games. You know, I had an opportunity to stay over there in the UK. I had an opportunity to go to Jamaica and work down there. A couple of opportunities in the US, an opportunity to go back to Canada, even an opportunity to go to Russia. Um, long story short, I found myself in Phoenix in the sun. Uh, I'd spent too long being cold and wet and miserable. And, <laughs> you know, I, I was just, uh, you know, I just wanted to be somewhere where it was warm and sunny and you know, so I got to, you know, involved in a startup that at the time was called the World Athletic Center um, that was started by an ex uh, elite thrower named John Godina. And uh, Altus was sort of born out of that. We, we rebranded as Altus in 2015. In 2017, uh, myself and Kevin Tyler bought the company from John. And um, that's basically it really, you know, we started off as a bit of a track and field company that did some education on the side because a lot of people outside of track and field saw the value in that. So we started, you know, we were, we've always sort of been educating other people, but that became the thing, the business, essentially. Um, what started off as track and field company doing education almost became an education company that did some track and field. And that's kind of where we're at now. We're, we're more of an education company that sort of matches where, I am at my point in my career where, you know, 30 years in or over 30 years in, I'm, I'm, you know, trying to find ways now where I can share whatever knowledge I've got, whatever, um, you know, information I have about how to navigate a coaching career with younger coaches. So that's, uh, that's what takes us up to the current day. Brilliant. And you mentioned a little bit about your purpose on when you first started out um, working with with athletes initially, has that changed throughout your career? Like, what's your your purpose, your why for going going working with people now? Is that different to before? Yeah, I mean, it's it's these are the questions I think that you have prior to going out and doing work, while you're doing work, and then looking back, right? So when I feel like when I was a young coach, we're we're all sort of motivated by very similar things. We just want to do what we like to do and what we're good at. Yeah. So let's figure out what I like to do. What I really liked to do back then was, was use my body and use my brain to do stuff. And I knew I wanted to work in, in, well, you know, I said, I went and actually did an art degree after, uh, after I finished high school, because that's oh, really? what I was really good at. You know, I knew, I probably knew in the end of high school that I wasn't going to be a professional uh, athlete of any, any sort, but I was a very good artist. So I went to uh, art school. And a couple of years into art school, I figured, it, I figured that, you know what, this isn't, isn't for me. I'm not as interested in this as I am actually going out and being active. But I, at the time, I didn't really know that there, was, there wasn't much of a, an industry in sport performance. 
And I met a couple of people that were actually working in sport performance at the time. And I just, I think a light bulb, a light bulb went off in me. I said, oh, maybe I can actually find a career in this. I can do coaching. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's other parts of the world. Coaching was a career in Canada in 1991. It really didn't exist at all. You know, we sort of built it. Um, so I, I, I found that, yes, there's a potential here for me to do something that I like and make a career out of it. And then I just started doing that, right? So my purpose to, uh, initially was just doing things I like to do and trying to figure out a way to make money doing it. Yeah. That was it, you know? Um, and then after that, once I got into a, you know, a job where I didn't have to worry about a paycheck every two weeks, then it became a little bit more about, all right, how do I get better at this? What do I need to do? How do I educate myself to what, so I can learn how to be the best that I can possibly be in this, which is at the time about me being as good a possible coach as I could be. What did that, what did that mean? And where did I need to, to, um, to go with my studies to figure out how to do that? That over time, when I got more and more comfortable with sort of what I understood about coaching, it became probably more important for me that the athletes that I was coaching, I was impacting them in a positive way. So it became less about me and a little bit more about the 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 or whatever, however many athletes that I was working with at the time and how they were doing and how I was impacting their lives, how I was impacting their performance. And that became sort of my motivation over the middle of my career. It was all about, all right, how can I put myself in a position where I can impact these athletes careers as much as I possibly can mm-hmm. and I think that you know it's you know that that's we always have different reasons you know it's it's, it's dynamical and it's complex right it's it's not it's not like I had one reason that's my reason for being that's the reason I got up in the morning was just for this there's a bunch of other things that come mm-hmm. along with that that's probably though at that time of my career like through the middle of my career was the driver like that was the main reason it was it's how can i affect athlete performance i'm not sure if that's the case anymore to be honest like that's really important to me still you know i still coach a group of uh 15 i think 15 athletes in total a few remote a few here in atlanta um and it's really important to me that they do really well that i can impact their lives in a positive way meaning i can impact their performance in a positive way that whatever their goals are i can help them reach those those goals but on top of that and almost at this part of my career kind of superseding that is how can i give back to the community of coaches worldwide because that's sort of where i'm at in my career now right you're you're 30 years in and you kind of you know you look for different different reasons to do what you're doing you know it's that doesn't that's not static so it's now is how can I be the best coach educator I can be? What does that look like? How do I, how can I communicate better to the, to the community of coaches around the world and what type of coaches and, and, and how I can communicate to them? So it's, um, but that's like, like I said, that's not necessarily, that's still not just about that. It's still important for me to be as knowledgeable a coach as I can possibly be. So I'm still selfish with that i still research and i still study and i still read and i still try to work out how i can be a better coach i still try to be the best coach i can be for the athletes that i'm working with so i'm still trying to impact their lives and their performances in as a greater way as i can and i'm trying to figure out in this new role with altus now especially over the last sort of five years of how we can better educate younger coaches how we can use our experiences to help them navigate navigate their own coaching journeys 
Yeah, thank you for sharing that because I think that's really good to hear the transition of your, I don't know, it's probably a little bit cliche saying your why or your purpose, but that's essentially what we're discussing, isn't it? The reason that you're you're going and, and the impact you want to make. And it is really interesting. I fully agree that that changes, doesn't it? Or there are a number that you, that have reasons, there's not just that single one and that can transition for a career as well. Um, I'll pick you up on something because I think it's, it's interesting, something we spoke up about before. You spoke about working with athletes and every time you mentioned about working with an athlete, you mentioned lives before performance, affecting their life before their performance. Can we go into that? Like, Because that, for me, that's a, a huge part of the coach's role, isn't it? Yeah, I'm not sure. No? Yeah, I, I'm not sure that it is. I no? think with some coaches, some of the time, life supersedes performance. But I think for too many coaches, too many of the time, that is that they take that as a heuristic and then it's all the time that my job as a coach is to impact this person's this young person's or this older person's life mm. and it's not about performance remember we're but but in most instances with most coaches they don't have that skill set yeah they have the skill set as a performance coach or a health coach or a health and performance coach but they don't necessarily have the skill set as being a life coach you know, and we, we, you know, there's these cliches, right? We coach the person and not the athlete. And yeah, I, I, I do agree with that. But our jobs, you know, if you really, really draw narrow into this, our job is to impact their performance. Mm. Most in most cases, it's yeah. not their life. It's not to help them out with their life. Right. Mm. But I feel like I with with me now at this point in my career, I understand the bigger picture, maybe a little bit better than I did when I was five years in or 10 years in or 15 years in. Mm. I think when you're starting out, when you're, five, when you're a, a younger coach, you're five years into your career, your job is to get the athlete in front of you better at what they're doing. That's it. Yeah. You know? yeah. Don't, don't conflate that. You're not a life coach. You're not to help them out with their life. That's, they've got parents for that. They've got other people in their lives for that. Your, your job is to, you know, if you're a, you're, you're a sprint coach, your job is to get them better at sprinting. If you're a football coach, is to get them better at football. Now, once you develop those relationships over time, you can impact their lives in a positive way. And now, obviously, there's a massive crossover right, right there, right? And with most of the athletes that we work with, that Venn diagram of, of life and performance is a massive crossover. You know, and, and you know, we can debate the, uh, the healthiness of how much of a crossover is good and how much of it is you know, we need to separate that. But the reality is most of the best athletes that I've ever worked with and probably most of the best athletes that anyone's ever worked with have a very large crossover between their life and their athletic career, right? They, so there's, there's a little separation between the two. So in, uh, you know, uh, indirectly, we're impacting both regardless. And I think it's important to understand that. It's just not, you know, that's not our primary role. Our, our primary role as a strength and conditioning coach or a fitness coach or a technical tactical coach, whatever role that you have on, on the coaching team is to impact their performance. And ideally, and hopefully, if you're doing it in, a, uh, in an ethical and a positive way, then you're also impacting their life. But it's important, I think, that we think about it in that order, performance and then life, not life and then performance, even though I did say life and then performance. But I feel like, as I said, it's, it's, it's I think that maybe comes with experience. Yeah, I was just about to say, I should have probably been a bit more specific on that because I think like you'd mentioned a life coach and you see the cliche of like a 19, 20 year old life coach that's 
not had much of their life yet. Like I'm not sure how you can coach someone when you when you're that young. But it, I just thought to get your opinion. But when you've worked with someone for many years, it's not just solely going to be your relationship is about the performance because you're going to get to know that person pretty well, aren't you? I'm sure you, you've got athletes yourself that you know a lot about them and and you've had a big impact on them away from the track or away from performance as well as well as on yeah and it's it's you know i'll put myself up on a little bit on what i said so it's it's if you're a 22 year old coach as i was in 1991 and you're working with 14 year old kids you're probably not only motivated by how the kid moves or how the kid runs or how the kid plays football you want to do it in a way that as i said is is impacting how they go about responding to authority responding to coaching so there's a way to do it still right it's, it's what i'm saying is not it's it's an indirect effect on their life through coaching coaches can have a very um impactful and positive effect on how young people go through their lives for sure they can and i think it's really important that the coaches that are working with 14 15 16 year olds are, are educated in a way in which they do have a positive impact because we can also there's the opposite of that coaches can have a very negative impact on how uh, young athletes go through their lives as we're, as we're seeing more and more over the course of the last few years with some of the high profile cases that are coming up so it's I, I don't want people to get, to get confused in what I said there, that it's only, only about performance. So just understand that there's probably a way in which we can act as coaches and um, affect the lives of these athletes through how we're coaching them for their sport. But I just, it's, it is a, there's a link there, and I'm not sure that I totally fully communicated what that means earlier. So it's, yes. Um, to get to your question, we get to know these kids really, really well over the course of time. We spend, you know, I spend at this time in my life, 20 to 25 hours a week with the kids that I'm coaching. So that can be, you get to know them really well, pretty quickly. And yeah. if you're coaching somebody for uh, six, eight, 10, 12 years, I've been coaching one athlete for 14 years now. I know her as, um, you know, it's, we're like family at this point. Yeah. You know, it's, um, so it's, 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 I really um, value that and I value those relationships and I value the, the impact that not only that I can potentially have on their lives, but that the athletes have on my life. Yeah, definitely. No, and I think I fully agree. And if you relate that to football, coaches working in academies, um, that ties in with what you were talking about. You, you're providing an experience for them that they're going to carry on into hopefully their professional life whether it is football or whatever else they continue to go on to do whereas first team is probably going to be more about performance isn't it because first team is about performance um so no i think i think that was great but i i appreciate um what you're getting at with that and uh, and i fully agree um i want it we couldn't get you on without diving into some speed development work um and the first thing I was going to ask is when you have come in uh, to in, in interactions, conversations with coaches in team sports, particularly football, what are the, some of the most common questions that get put to you? 
Um, it used to be, how do we get our players faster? Um, because I think that, that was my role at the time. I was a coach that was known to be able to get athletes faster. So you, you know, most things start with a problem. So if you're a, if you're a fitness coach or a strength and conditioning coach for a team sport and you want to get your athletes faster and you don't have the requisite expertise to understand how to do that, that's your problem. And you look for people that can do that. So I, I would come in and help those coaches help the athletes to get faster. At this point in my career, it's slightly different. Um, I can speak to, you know, a, a greater magnitude of problems, I think, you know, whether it's healthier, whether it's better mechanics, whether it's uh, the integration of health and performance, whether it's system building, whatever. Um, but still, even said that, even, even that being said, most of, the, most of the time that most coaches come to us, whether it's us as Altus or me as just a coach, it's about improving the speed of the players. But it's more than that. It's improving the speed of the players to play the game faster, not necessarily just to get faster. Where I think that's where the industries come now and we have a better understanding of that difference. 20 years ago, 15 years ago, there was an assumption. And, for in, and in some people and sometimes in some spaces, it's still the same. There was an assumption that just by an athlete or a player getting faster, that meant necessarily that they would play the game faster. And we know mm -hmm. that's not the, not, not the case anymore. So where I feel like a lot of coaches struggle, whether they're fitness coaches, strength and conditioning coaches, whatever, is understanding. And they know now that, all right, if, if I'm going to be working on getting my players faster, my teams faster, it, that means playing the game faster. That doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean they have a, a faster 20 meters or have a faster 30 meters. How do I get them playing faster? And that's the struggle now. That's what we're working on now. That's, that's all of the work that we've been doing over the course of probably the last four or five years is understanding that better, what that means, what those questions are, how we can impact not necessarily just their speed, but how they play the game. Because if you're impacting their speed away from the game, but you're not impacting how they play the game, then you've just wasted that athlete's time and you've wasted the coach's time. They have to impact the way they play the game. If you're not, it's... Um, you know, you know what's, what are you doing there? So that's what, that's what we continue to work with now. That's, that's, that's probably consistently what most coaches now are looking for. They understand that there's a difference between running outside of the game in an isolated way and running and being faster within the confines of the game and how those two differ and how they can impact the latter. And when you said before, Stu, about yourself, when, when you, were a, you were a fast footballer, but then you went onto the track and you realised that you, you weren't up to standard of, of those guys, was it that the sprinters were so much quicker? Or do you think it was like the, you had the sort of game insight and you were able to use your speed well on the pitch? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting, interesting question. Um, no, they were way faster. <laughs> 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 yeah they were way faster but i, I you know I, I i got an interesting story so I, I stopped playing you know at a high level when i was 22 or 23 and got into track got into sprinting and i didn't I, I went into sprinting without much of an understanding of what sprinting meant i didn't really know anything about sprint mechanics i didn't know anything about sprint training um i didn't know what you know, I didn't think about sprinting and what my mechanics should be when I was a footballer. I just ran. 
And then I understood, then I learned all this stuff, mechanics, force production, direction of force production, you know, what, all this stuff that was, that was involved in becoming faster. I learned over the course of the next three, four, five, six, seven years. And I actually went back and played um, men's league football a few years later. So maybe if I stopped playing at a high level when I was 22 or 23, I think I went back and started playing again when I was 28 or 29. And I felt like, and I, I'm, not, I'm not certain whether I'm just biased, you know, looking back and hindsight bias here. I felt like I was a much faster footballer from understanding more about mechanics and having to demonstrate a lot of these things by, you know, through my time through that period of being a sprint coach or a speed coach for other players. I felt like that impacted my ability to play the game in a positive way where I knew now that I knew that I was faster than the players I was playing against. So I was able to almost manipulate the way I played the game to become a better player. So, so I, you know, I, I, that's when I started thinking back, okay, if I knew this stuff when I was 19 or 18 or 20 and understood how to maximize my sprint ability, would I have been a better player? Would I have been even faster? And then I could use that, you know, action capability to impact my performance better than I could have when I didn't know that stuff, right? So knowledge of rather than just knowledge in. Um, excuse me. <clears throat> so that's when I started really thinking about this. You know, it's the, the, the separation and sometimes the confluence between working in the content of a movement and the context of the movement, working with, you know, on an action capability outside the, uh, the context of the game and working with that ability within the confines of the game. So that's when I really started thinking about it. Um, and I totally forgot your question. Um, uh, I was just asking about yourself, um, like around, uh, around the sort of game insight and going back into, into that, like, was it the fact that I think we went right back to with the guys just really quick or was it, was it the game insight that, that, yeah. Led to you being so quick on the pitch. Yeah, and that's that's right. That's it. so. What what I came came away with there is, and this was you know I this, I was a young guy and I didn't really know anything, of, uh, so that's my caveat. But I still felt at that time that yes, if I could be faster outside of the game, that's going to make me a, a faster player in the game. That was the assumption that I had at the time, and I think that's the assumption that the industry had at the time that if you're stronger you'd be better at playing the game if it involved any sort, of, any sort of strength ability. If you're faster, then you'll be better at playing the game uh, if it had anything to do with being fast or, or speed. And that's, that's what, kind of where we start. But I had the insight, as you said, I started asking those questions because, yeah, that's my assumption, but am I really, you know, is this really necessarily true? And that sort of started this, this you know 15 or 20 year journey from then to better understand the assumptions that we make and better understand this 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 word of transfer or, or relatedness of you know the stuff we do and the work that we do outside of the game how does that relate to how athletes and players play the game and that's that's everything about you know all of our you know probably all the people that are listening to this that's what they're most interested in right if, yeah. if you're not impacting how they play the game with the work that you do then you're wasting your time and theirs so it's um you know i had the 
the as I said, most most of the players that most of the people that are listening will have very similar experiences, right? And most of them play the game, whatever game that is, they'll have played that if they're working in it now. So we have those questions, and sometimes, you know, well, all the times we're we're biased toward you know back towards our own experiences. And you know, my initial experiences was I was fast, and that's one of the reasons why I was good, um, and that's what sort of got me into it, right? But then I started quickly understanding that that's, that's, there's not a one-to-one relationship, relationship there that just because I get faster doesn't necessarily mean that I, I'm, I'm a better player. Um, um, and as I said, that's, that's been the journey ever, ever since. Yeah, no, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because I'm sure a lot of the listeners are thinking now about specific cases in their team of, oh, we've got X player who's, who's really quick. And I wonder if I did more work with this player or even that player, like what sort of impact could I make with them? Um, and, I, and I know there was some work by, I think Paul Colbeck did some breakdown of when Usain Bolt went into football and uh, when he was playing, he did some comparisons between Usain Bolt and um, I can't think of the player he did, but our Premier League player and sort of how the insight came into it. It wasn't just about the speeds that the players were hitting. It was more about reacting preempting like situations in the game that really had the impact and they were the impactful times in a game it wasn't just solely about how fast they could run yeah it, it's you know his research is really interesting right and, and much of the research that's come out over the last sort of decade has been really interesting and it's given us better insight into where speed is important how speed is important we didn't have that 20 years ago you just make like i said we just made those assumptions that yeah if i'm faster i'll play the game better because i can beat this player and, you know, like, as I said, most of us have our own experiences that speak to that, right? I remember quite vividly that because I was faster, I could just knock the ball back past the fullback and run by him. And that impacted the way I played the game. And we can just say, okay, if, if I get this player faster and he can do that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like, and, and I, I feel to a, to a degree that's still, that's still true. Right. And I think that's what, what Paul's, um, you know, much of his research showed, right? Yeah, speed is important. It's important in these impactful moments in games. It's not important all the time, but there might be one or two, you know, plays during a game where that you you because the the player's peak speed is faster, they can they're able to get to the ball quicker and you know produce a game-defining moment. So it's it still is really important that just that linear speed is uh, is still seemingly super important. It's just how does that now. Uh, interact with all of the other stuff that's involved in the game. That's what you know. everybody's just still trying to figure out. And with that in mind, if we're talking about being efficient with the time that we have with our players, I want to, and I'll reference the podcast I did with Nick, because we spoke about part-time programs, semi-professional programs um, that a lot of coaches are working on that on limited time, they might only be having I don't know, 30 minutes a session, if that maybe 20 minutes a session, and they, they want to put some work into their players. If we've got that in mind, how, or in your point, from your point of view, how can we be efficient with that time? Where should we focus our energy with everything that we've just spoke about in mind? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's, that's very, very contextual, uh, dependent entirely upon who you're working with, where they are in their career, how much time you have to work with them. Uh, the way in which I sort of organize that in my own brain um, is if we look at, you know, the skill as the skill of running fast 
as you play football, as the ultimate objective of a coach that's interested in impacting speed of the football player, as it is, right? That's the skill of actually playing the game faster is our ultimate objective there when we're working on quote unquote speed work and work back from there. So if skill is the application of the sports specific technique in context, and we need to understand that, that that's, it's in context. Yeah. It has to be in context and work back. If you've got then a, uh, pro- if you're working with a professional football team and most of your players are, let's say they're an average age of 27 and you're seeing them for 15 minutes, four times a week. So you've got about an hour of work with them per week. Then you're going to spend most of your time trying to impact the skill because yeah. if you're if you any generation away from that skill, you're having le- it's less related to the how they play the game. So you're trying you're trying then to devise ways in which you can impact how they play the game directly, because you don't have the time to build all these other things that lead up to that, mm-hmm. and they're also in a part of their development where their their capacity, their ability, their you know their potential. It's kind of maximized, right? They're at the, the rate of diminishing returns on all of those things. But what they're not at is the actual skill of sprinting in the game. So it's, it's the, way, the way in which I organize this sort of, uh, um, in, in my, like I said, in my brain, is if you start with an athlete's potential, right? That's with something that's capable of coming into being or being developed, right? So if you think about what that means from uh, an, a, a player playing the game fast, do they actually have the potential to do that? What is their morphology? What is their genetics? What is their, you know, what is their uh, fiber type and, and, and that sort of thing? Can you affect the potential? Would you spend much time trying to f- affect the potential of a professional player that you're working with for an hour a week? Probably not, right? Probably not, because you may, you may be able to affect it, but is there, it's probably so many generations away from the skill of playing in the game that you're not really going to affect how they're performing. But if, you're, if you've got a 14-year-old kid that's nowhere near maximized their potential in anything that they're doing, then by doing this general work in trying to affect the potential, maybe you're just working on, on uh, motor unit recruitment, for example. Maybe you're just doing isometric uh, uh, mid-thigh pulls. Right? Maybe by increasing their ability to do an a, 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 isometric mid-thigh pull that you're increasing their potential to the point where they can actually apply more force they can move better their technique looks better and they can actually be more skillful in the game just by increasing or improving their potential that's not the case with a professional right further down or further close now this closer now to the skill is the capacity right so the physical manifestation of the of the potential so if we take say the the mid-thigh pull as you know, uh, as our measurement of a player's potential, the measurement of an athlete's capacity, there the manifestation of that potential. It could be, say, a deadlift, or a squat, or an Olympic lift. So we, you know, it's a little bit closer. It's a generation closer to the skill, but it's still nowhere near it. But if uh, if you've got a 16-year-old player, by improving the player's capacity, their ability to you know produce work their, their, their uh, capacity of their maximal amount of energy or work, then you're probably going to have a pretty direct effect on how they play the game without doing anything around the skill or the technique or their ability. 
It's you're just getting stronger and they'll probably get faster and they'll probably play the game faster. Um, but again, if you're doing that with a 27 year old professional player that you see four days a week, um, 15 to, to, to 30 minutes at a time, by doing that work, is it going to have a direct effect on how fast they are? Probably not. There's other reasons why you may want to do that, yeah. but it's not, it's not going to be a direct connection to how, how fast they play the game. Uh, now, closer to the skill again, so you've got the potential, you know, something that's capable of coming into being. You've got the capacity, which is the maximal amount of work or the physical manifestation of the potential. Next is the ability. It's the expression of the capacity in a sport-specific manner. So now, you know, as it said, maybe it relates to, um, you know, sprinting in a game, the physical um, uh, manifestation of this or the expression of the capacity in a sport specific way might be a resisted acceleration. So now can you use that increased strength capacity that you've developed in the weight room in a more sport specific way? say resisted excels. And this is a lot of work that a lot of the work that JB Moran and his group are doing, right. Is in, in that ability realm. And there's also the next realm down that I'll talk about in a second is basically, um, you know, expressing that capacity in a sport specific way. So now it's, again, it's closer to the skill in context, which is playing the game faster. And now we're, now we start talking about the type of work that we can do with professional players that may actually impact the way they play the game in context so now it's yeah if somebody is has the ability to do a a resisted acceleration better that improves over the course of time there's a possibility there that that might have a direct effect with how they play the game depending upon where they're coming into it from mm. right if they were if they have no clue how to express force no no clue how to accelerate and use whatever strength capacity that they have by working on this ability, you actually might improve their acceleration ability, right? So, and then again, closer now to the game is bringing it a little bit more contextual. So the technique, it's the application of that sport specific ability, but without context. So now we may work, you know, take snippets out of the game and actually accelerate Get a, get a ball involved, get a couple players involved. And now actually, can you accelerate better? Can you apply that sports specific ability with a little bit more context, but still outside of the full context of the game? Um, you know, that's, that's what we talk about when, you know, the, the type of work that we're doing in warmups, because I, I feel like in most cases with most coaches, they're not going to be able to directly affect skill in the game. You've got to have, some significantly impressive buy-in from your technical and tactical coaches and head coaches to be able to have that um, influence, that level of influence. But what we can do is we can work on the technique. So, so most of the time that we have as uh, fitness coaches, strength and conditioning coaches with team sport uh, players are in warmups, as we know, right? So we can, we can, most coaches now, most technical tactical coaches and head coaches will allow some use of the ball in, in, in some of these um, instances or most of these instances, most of the coaches will also allow, you know, players to play together and move together. So we can have some impact now in a slightly decontextualized way, but still not directly to the skill in the game, which is means, you know, with all the inf in information in the environment and the full ecosystem that's involved in playing. So that, I think that's where our greatest impact is. You know, I talk, we talk about leverage points, right? If you're trying to impact speed of play, 
for each player, what is the most appropriate leverage point within that entire system? So at one end of that continuum, you've got skill, which is the application of speed in the game, in the full game with all the information in the ecosystem that we're playing it within. At the other end of that spectrum, you've got the potential, something that's capable of coming into being, right? And all the way across that, where is the most appropriate leverage point for me as a coach to work on the players that are in front of me at that time? So for, as I said, for the professional player, it's probably right at technique, right? It's not the full skill. I'm not going to be out there with the technical tactical and the head coaches running a practice and stopping the practice and talking to them about how they're, how they're sprinting. That doesn't, that doesn't exist. But what does exist is that time where I have with the players prior or afterwards or while players are rehabbing, whatever, that's where I can get involved and actually impact how players play the game. Now with a 14 year old, it could be very different or it, no, it's not could be, it's very different. Yeah. I can impact how they play a game using very general means, meaning I get them stronger. I work on their ability to express that strength. I work on their technique, their sport specific ability. And that's where I'll probably spend most of my time as a coach of 14 to 17 year olds is getting them stronger, learn, teaching them how to technique and how to express that strength in sports specific ways. Does that make any sense? That yeah, was, it's brilliant. Ramble, I apologize. If you've seen our online community and been tempted to join, but not sure if it's for you because of the club you're at, the standard you work out, the players you work with, I was looking this week and we've got coaches right across the football spectrum from Swansea City, Millwall Ladies, Everton Women, Preston North End, Benfica, Hapoel Tel Aviv, Chorley, Morpeth Town. So right across the football spectrum. Come and become a member because it gives you access to many other practitioners right across across the world of football. You can interact with all different um, coaches and practitioners from different clubs. You also get access to all the webinars and presentations that are already uploaded on our community. If you're not based in the UK and you can't make it to any of our networking events, all the presentations from the events get uploaded onto the community. So it's a great chance to go and watch presentations from loads of different practitioners that we've had at our events. We also have some great member discounts available from some brilliant companies as well. So you can go and check all that out. You can get yourself a free month to see what it's all about by going to footballfitfed.com. Click the community tab, sign up there. That'll give you a month free. Check it out. Check out all the presentations, the webinars. And then after that free month, it is only £4.99 per month going forward. So come and join, become a community member, get access to loads of great new coaches and loads of great new content by going to footballfitfed.com clicking the community tab and signing up there. Here's part two of the podcast with Stu McMillan. No, it was superb. And it ties really nicely. I did a podcast with Jonas not, well, quite a while ago now, and he spoke about some very similar um, sort of thought processes. And I think the skill of that, Stu, also comes down to when you've got a squad in front of you of however many players, you're going to have players sort of scattered along that spectrum as well, though, aren't you? Because you are going to have some of the professional players that are, are just going to be focusing on that, the game side of things. But the, there are going to be players with maybe less of a S&C background, a strength background that maybe need that the foundation work that we're talking about academy players having. Uh, and I know that is changing now with football, like generally, because there are more programmes being um, put in play from an early age, but also professional level. But... 
how would you go about that? Because if we were talking about having players throughout that spectrum and we're, we're trying to go, right, we want to impact here, well, then these players need, still need this. Is it a case of just splitting them off? Like, what, what would your approach be to that? Yeah, I mean, that's the job, isn't it? Um, <laughs> yeah. We, we work with individual players on a team and we've got to, um, you know, our, our job is literally understanding what each individual needs as it relates to playing the game. Now, what I've found, and I do this even with my professionals and always have, whether it's working with professional track and field athletes or professional footballers or, or American football players or whatever, is you, you, you can mailbox players into what they, where their le most appropriate leverage point is. So figure out what the leverage points are there where you can affect a majority of the team. And you might have, okay, these four players here, this leverage point is going to be I'm just going to try to get them stronger because they can't, they don't even apply anywhere near the amount of force that's required. I can spend time on getting them more technically efficient, but they're just weak as hell. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how, how technically they are. So the, these guys are going to get strong. So we're going to design, design, you know, practices that's going to be trying to affect that. This group here, they, you know, they're, they're pretty strong. They can apply force pretty well, but the technique sucks. So we're going to spend a little bit more time on the technique of these players. These players over here, their technique is excellent and they're strong and they're really quite good. So we're going to, you know, involve a lot more information, a lot more complexity, put a lot more, you know, put them in the ecosystem that they might be, um, you know, playing the game at. And that's probably the three groups, right? You've got the ones that are just weak. You just got to get them stronger. You've got the ones that are strong enough that just don't have that have poor technique and you have the ones that are, are strong enough and have pretty good technique and we can involve a little bit more information. So that's, that's probably the way I would do it with almost every single group at every level includes professional levels, right? You've, you've got professional players, especially in football that are very, very weak. Yeah. That you may be able to affect their sprint ability just by getting them a bit stronger. You know, that's, that's easier said than done, obviously, because you've got to, you know, get buy-in. You have to find the time to do that and so on and so forth. But, you know, it's, you might, it's not many of those players. In, in football, it's more than, say, it is in professional uh, American football because a prerequisite for being an American football player is to being strong. Yeah. So you'll feel, find nobody that's weak. Yeah. So you're generally working on the technique and skill end with, with, with American football players. But with, um, you know, English football players, there's, there's a lot of even professionals who are super weak that you can, you can impact how they play just by getting them a little bit stronger, working on, on, on the ability now to accelerate better or to, to sprint better. Um, and, and, you know, it's that, that might be your leverage point. But I feel like with, with, most, with most people, most of the time, with, you know, with the constraints that, exist in professional sport it's it's challenging some you know we want to do all of these things but the constraints don't allow us to do it mm. oftentimes right so we have to try to figure out what is the best use of my time um with this say hour a week that i have with these players and where i start with with um you know most of the, the of the professional uh, coaching teams that i work with is in two instances it's, you know, for example, I work with, a, we were based in Arizona for almost nine years. And anyone who's, who's, who's over here in, the, in America knows that baseball have half of your teams are based in Arizona and half of the teams are based in Florida. 
Now they all, all they obviously play all over the uh, uh, over uh, North America, but their bases, half of them are in Phoenix or the Phoenix area, and half of them are in the Florida area. So we, because we were in Phoenix, we worked with a lot of baseball teams and a lot of baseball coaches. So the first thing that I would do when I, when any of these baseball uh, coaches or baseball teams contacted us was go out to practice and watch them coach. And in nine instances out of 10, the coaching impact was limited to what happened in the weight room. And what happened out on the field was, and it's a little bit different in baseball than it is in football, I understand that, but it's still, it's not that, it's not as different, I don't think, as what many, many people think. What happened on the field was a coach would read off a list of warm-up exercises for the players to do. The players would go through that warm-up exercise or skip, run over here, shuffle over there, karaoke here, do some stretches, blah, blah, blah. And there's very little qualitative work being done there. There's very little intention of any of the coaches. Mm. Most of the coaches are not even paying really that much attention <laughs> at all, right? There's a lot of coaches are just standing by the side with a coffee in the hand and reading off a list or, or memorizing a list and just, and just reading it off. And if the coach isn't intentional with the work that they're doing or paying attention to how the athletes are moving, then how do we expect the athletes to pay attention and be intentional with how they are moving? Now, I know a lot of that is tradition and it's really difficult. You'll have a lot of players that don't listen to you. You don't want to listen, don't want to listen to you, especially at the professional levels, right? But our job is to try to impact all the players as much as we can. So right from the start, we know we're probably not going to impact a third of them. A third of them are just not going to, they're not going to care. Yeah. But that gives us still two thirds of the players that we can impact how they play the game. And that requires us to be intentional and paying attention consistently over and over and over and over again. And only when we're consistent with that, will we start to see it being bought in by the players. So if we see, if we start being really intentional by with how we are playing, how we are guiding athletes through warmups, for example, how they're skipping, how they're shuffling, how they're sprinting back in between drills, whatever that is, you can start building this, this sort of circle of communication with the athlete where the athlete starts to understand what is important. And because you are taking it you know, you know, consistently, intentionally, and at attention every single day, they, they'll, they'll, they'll start to buy in over the course of time. So for me, the, the very first step getting around back, back to your question was getting the coaches to actually pay attention. And being intentional with what they're doing, not just in the weight room. Yeah. Right. Because most of us do both. Most of us are the fitness coach out on the field, but also the strength and conditioning coach in the weight room. And most of the coaches in this realm are like this when it comes to the work in the weight room. They're very, very picky with how the athletes are moving, how the players are moving. But when they're out in the field, it's just, whatever happens, you know, mm -hmm. I'm just there to read off a list and you go through the exercises, you go through the quote unquote drills. And because I've taken you through these exercises or these drills, the athletes will be better movers or better players or better sprinters or whatever. And we know that that's obviously not the case. Better coaches are intentional about everything that they do, how the players move all of the time. And I think we can impact um, how players play the game, not just how fast they are, but how fast they are is a, is a indirect from this just by being more demanding about how players move all the time. So how they jog around the field. If you have your players jog around the field, a couple laps, 
How do they jog? How do they do that? How they skip? What are they thinking about when they skip? Are they thinking about their feet at all? Are they thinking about their arms? Are they trying to pay attention to their pelvic position? Are they trying to pay attention to how, how their shoulders are moving? Are you having these conversations with the players over and over and over again? And only when you, when you build that, that relationship where you as a coach have the same intention and attention as the players, then we can start impacting that, how the players move and how, how healthy they are and how they perform. That is brilliant. And it is probably a little sad hobby of mine that when I go and watch football matches, I always want to get there early and watch warm-ups. Um, <laughs> but you see it, don't you? You've just mentioned probably however many percent of the, the team that don't show that intent. And you see it in a warm-up. When players are in a line, they're going through the stretches. Basically, there's no point in doing them. They may as well be... Um, playing with a ball, they're probably going to do more expansive movements with a ball, aren't they? But I fully agree. I think that intent has to come from the coaches. Um, I do think that, 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 like you said, there are a group of players. And I spoke to Connor Washington, who plays for Northern Ireland not long ago, and he was saying the same. He said, you're going to have that group of players that aren't going to do it. They're not going to buy into it. But then you have to impact the ones that will. And I fully agree that, like, that, that, that intent in warm-ups, like, it has to be led by the coach, doesn't it? And you, you, you see the difference. It's, it's glaringly obvious, isn't it, when you start watching warm-ups? Yeah, it's, it's hard, right? And this is why many coaches stop, is, you know, it, the consistency is challenging because the, most, most of the players haven't really been, uh, you know, coaches haven't demanded this intention from them before. So if you start working with 20-year-old players, let's say you go into – you know, the championship and you've got a, a job as a fitness coach for a championship team. Most of the players haven't been demanded this type, this level of intention about what they're doing. And now you're demanding it and you're getting pushback and you get, and you're getting, you know, people don't really know what you're saying or understand how you're saying it. And you're not really seeing the impact. And what, what are most coaches going to do? They're kind of going to give up, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's challenging, right? When you've got new players trying to learn new skills and it's taking time, there's a struggle there that many of the players aren't really willing to go through, but also many of the coaches are not willing to go through. But that's what coaching is. You don't give up when you're trying to teach a player how to squat or how to do a, a rear fit elevated split squat or how to do a clean. The job of coaching is to do that, is to teach them how to do it. That's the entire job. Now, some of them, as you, as you know, aren't, aren't going to be interested. That's okay. Hmm. But you know what? They're not, many of them are not interested because they've seen guys like you, girls like you come in before. You guys are a dime a dozen to them. And they just know that, you know, a year later, they're going to be out and somebody will come in with a new set of ideas and whatever. I'm just going to, I'm at this point in my career now doing what I do and I'm going to continue doing what I do. But if you're consistent with it every single day and you're, and you're demanding intention from the athletes, every single one of them all the time, then even those ones that, aren't really that engaged to begin with, they're going to eventually start, you know, moving your way. They, they do. I've seen it over and over again. So it's, it's just, I, I, I feel like we all kind of have that. Um, we understand it's important and we go into each of those situations and scenarios, environments, understanding that and with the best intentions, but it's a lot harder than I feel like many think and many coaches give up early. Yeah, where it's the whole job is that that's your job. Your job isn't to read up a list of, of exercises, have them go through it, make it look pretty. And then, OK, that's it. They're warm. 
over to you guys. Mm. Your job is to impact how they play the game. And if your only opportunity to do that is 15 minutes a day on the warmups, that's your time. How do I do it now? Well, you can impact how they play a game by making sure that they move better. And if they move better, they're going to perform better and they'll be healthier. That's your time. So really, you know, make the most of it. Design your warmups to try to make the most of it rather than just copying everybody else. These warmups now that you see, it's, it's everybody's doing the same thing in the same way. There's no intention. Players aren't paying attention. Coaches aren't really paying attention. It's not, it's not, it's really, it's, it's doing nothing, as you said, mm. in most cases. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a great point. And I, and I also think you've got to understand because it's easy to look from the outside, isn't it? And um, look at a team and be like, well, they're not doing it and not knowing that the coach is, is changing the culture at the club and they are making progress, but it's not happening yet. So it's very easy to look from the outside. I get that. But um, no, it's really interesting. I think I think those, the point on intent and pushing that with players and, and essentially it comes down to your standards, doesn't it? If you're, if you're keeping your standards at a certain level, day in, day out, session in, session out, they know where you're at. Whereas if you let them drop at any point, players are going to slip back into where they were before, haven't they? Because it's, it's just natural to them. Yeah, 100%. 100%. It's, it's, you know, we talk about, you know, this is one of the things that we, we get pushback from a lot of American football coaches is there's a difference between, you know, speed and game speed, right? You guys don't, don't understand speed in the game. And this, this stuff isn't important because that's not game speed because they play the game with a ball and they got pads on, they've got all this other stuff. And that's, that's fair enough, right? That's a, that's a really good argument. Yeah. And many don't. Many coaches, frankly, don't understand. And they have still this assumption that just because I get them faster outside of the game, they're going to be necessarily faster inside the game. Now, that isn't, isn't obviously, it's not entirely true for, for many athletes. But what I believe is not controversial. If players are moving better, they're generally going to be performing better and they're generally going to be healthy. So our, our first goal is how do I affect a player's movement? Don't forget about speed, forget about running mechanics, acceleration mechanics, forget about all that. How do I just try to affect how these players move? Because there is a direct link between the quality of movement and the quantity on the ability to express whatever it is they're trying to express and their health It's direct. And I think we're, we're starting, research is starting to catch up to this now. It's still not quite there, but some of the work that Mendiguchi is doing and his group obviously are, are really helping with this. And I think it's probably going to be another couple of decades before we really, before the scientific, at least the sports science community, uh, truly understand this link. But coaches, at least smart coaches, have understood that there's a very strong link there for many, many years. Hmm. Right. So it's, it's don't be don't be, um, you know, don't be uh, dismayed by the lack of sports science support for this. It's some things are just logical. Yeah. If you move better, you're probably going to perform better and you'll probably be healthy. Now, there's there's a whole argument around what is better and what is correct and what's most effective, efficient and all that. And that's that's a rabbit hole that you can spend, you know, weeks going down. But it's, um, you know, that's our that's our, as I said, that's our jobs. Is to just get, you know, get them performing better, work back from that. What does that mean? If we get them moving better, more effectively, more efficient, efficiently, better movers, 
they can actually play the game better and healthier. So it's, you know, we, we try to, you know, I, I talk a lot about the content of the movement and the context, right. And where our roles as fitness coaches, SNC coaches, whatever, where they exist, are they, are they just in the content as it has been traditionally, or do we have to understand, we definitely have to understand the context, but do we have any effect in the context as well? And I think yeah. we do. We need to, we need to ensure that the two are married, but um, you know, the content is, is, is that, is this what I'm talking about, is the quality of movement. So what are your KPIs that determine what quality movement is? As a, you know, and, and my, my KPIs might be different than your KPIs, which may be different than Jonas's KPIs or someone else's, but have a list. Yeah. Understand yeah. what quality movement is so that you can start communicating it to the players that you're working with. Yeah, no, brilliant. I, I want to be respectful of your time, Stu, but I, just jumping on that point just very quickly, like, I was smiling when you said it because I've said this numerous times on the podcast that the old sort of phrase from technical coaches is all oh, players don't move well. And we never really know what that means, like because it, in their head, it can mean something completely different to what we understand. Um, but you just discussing that then, I think just opens up the fact that we, we do sort of know. And if we have our KPIs, and it, it might, like you say, it might be different coach to coach. We revert back to that, don't we? And then we work on the things that we know we can impact. And it all ties in quite nicely with the podcast. But I just thought I'd bring that up because it, it's something we've spoke about a lot, the moving well. Um, but like you say, what what is well? Like the play, all players move differently, don't we? They're all different shapes and sizes and have different skill sets and all the rest of it. And it's just a if we dive, like you say, we could probably do numerous podcasts looking into that in terms of what is moving well and what is not. <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah, no, no, I just thought it was an interesting way to sort of wrap things up. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, but yes, every, every player is individual, but there are some commonalities that exist within, within how, what, what good movement is, you know, what efficient and effective movement is. And there's, you know, there's those, those are what I call the rules, right? The rules of good sprinting or the rules of movement or whatever. And those are the commonalities. Those are the stable points. Those are the invariants. And there's variations, individual variations through every player in, in, in every sport, but based upon a, a lot of different internal constraints that they may have, right? But we know that a neutral pelvis is pretty important. If, if a player has a really, you know, anteriorly rotated pelvis and is backside with their cycle, we know they're going to have issues, almost yeah. all of them, right? Now, there'll be exceptions. There'll be exceptions to, you know, some players will have a, an anterior rotated pelvis and never have an issue. That's fine. But most of them won't, mm. you know? That's, that's the, we don't care about those people. Well, we do, but we don't, we don't list our rules around those people. Our rules are the commonalities, those invariant things, right? Torso position is important. If we have somebody who's, who's upright sprinting, but leaning way forward and everything goes backside, then they, we're not we're not maximizing the way that they sprint. Ankle, you know, flexed and stiff ankles are really important for me. Again, this, these are my list of my KPIs, right? These are my yeah. my rules, and you may have a slightly different set. But my my point is, have a list of KPIs that you use to determine what good movement is, and then be consistent with how you apply those over over time with every player all the time, and demand attention and attention from everybody. Brilliant. I'm just going to pick, we normally do some, I call them quick fire. They're never that quick fire, but a few quick fire questions on the end of the podcast. I'm just going to pick one of them. And then I've got a few, a couple of lighthearted questions just to finish off with that a few people have sent in. Um, 
And it's an interesting one. So who are some of the biggest influences on your career? Oh, um, all the athletes I've worked with. No question. More, more than anything. Yeah. You know, we're, we're almost, we're, all of us are sort of, um, you know, generally, even the stuff that I do now is influenced by the type of stuff that I was doing, the people I was with, and the work that I was doing when I first started, right? So we're kind of biased towards this, the stuff that we were doing when we started feeling like we were good at what we were doing, which is, you know, the stuff that I was doing in the 90s. So all the people around at that time, so Dan Path, big mentor of mine, obviously, and a, lot of, a big mentor of a lot of different coaches. He's, a, he's a, a significant influence to what I do now. The coaches that I was working with at the time, you know, Matt Jordan, Nick Ward, a few others, you know, the time about the mid nineties in Calgary, very influential, but by far the most influential influence to what I do and how I do it are the thousands of athletes I've worked with over the 32, 33 years I've been coaching. That's, that's, that's everything to me. I try to, you know, I, I don't think enough coaches try to, uh, they, 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 they see their roles as being very directive and it's my, my job is to coach you and to teach you. But if you're open, you can learn a heck of a lot more from them than they will ever learn from you, honestly. That's still, that's still the case. Brilliant. Right, these questions, you can take the professional hat off and put the fan hat on. <laughs> so <laughs> someone, right. someone has sent in, Rooney was probably the greatest striker. Do you believe Mo Salah has the title now? <laughs> first, first of all, Rooney wasn't the greatest. Striker. There's no way he was. Um, yeah, uh, Salah is, a, is is an incredible striker. I, I would love to have Salah on my team. I tell you, he's he's that goal he scored in the weekend was incredible. Oh. Um, so no, I don't, th I don't, th I I uh, I reject the premise of that question. <laughs> <laughs> the, the two, the, the, is, I, I would say Rooney is fourth in the list of, of uh, Premier League strikers. Oh, if you say fourth, who's, who's one, two, and three then? Well, Shearer, Henri, and Aguero. Okay. I'll give you it's that. Probably, probably in that order. I'll give you that. Yeah. Final <laughs> one. What's with the Insta handle? Were you involved in a butcher's accident? So my Instagram handle is uh, Fingermash. And uh, some people know this already. I was a DJ for many years. I DJed for 25 years. Um, and Fingermash was my DJ name. Oh, awesome. Yeah. That's a cool um, story. I wasn't yeah. expecting that. That's a really cool story. There you go. So I was, um, there's, there's a whole community of people in Canada that only know me by either Fingermash or Mash. Most people just call me Mash. Brilliant. So they, they wouldn't know my first name if, uh, if you asked them. <laughs> amazing Stu this has been absolutely quality I'm really um, really thankful for you giving up the time and coming on we've done over an hour there and I really appreciate you doing it we could have gone into loads more um, and I really enjoyed it absolutely flew by um, so thank you very much for coming on the podcast uh, thank you that did fly by I can't believe that's over an hour but um, yeah I appreciate your time and appreciate all you do and, and you do a great job with podcasts and, and thanks for that Thank you, mate. And just a heads up, we haven't really touched on much of the, the Altis work that you guys do, but if, if anyone wants any information, is the website the best place to go, social media? Where would you, where would you send them? 
Yeah, I think the website's the best place, altis.world. And, uh, you know, all the social media handles are at altis, A-L-T-I-S, and altis.world on, on the website is all the infos there if anyone's interested or they can just uh, reach out to me through all my uh, DMs are open on all of my channels. So if you're any, any interested in anything or interested in anything that we've talked about today, reach out. Love to hear from you. Perfect. Really appreciate it, mate. Thank you very much for coming on. Thanks, Ben. I can always tell on these episodes how much I'm enjoying the conversation when I look down at my watch and it feels like five minutes has gone and there's an hour gone on the podcast and that was exactly the case in this conversation. I could have spoke to Stu all day. I think we covered some great topics in this in this podcast. So please reach out. Let us know what you thought of the podcast because I think there was some absolute gold in this one. And a big thank you to Stu for coming on the podcast. You can go and give him a follow. Um, his personal Twitter is at Stuart McMillan and then the number one. Um, his Instagram is, as we spoke about in the podcast, at Fingermash. But go and check out Altis as well. So you can search Altis, A-L-T-I-S, over on Twitter and Instagram and check out some of the brilliant work that they're doing, including some of the courses that they have available as well. Um, takeaways in this one, I really struggled to narrow it down to just a few. Um, I think I had to pick out the, the early conversation around finding your purpose as a coach. And Stu spoke about doing what you like, doing what we're good at, and then working from there and then looking for opportunities. So I think that was a, that was a really good um, conversation initially. He also spoke about having that real impact with athletes and his purpose as well actually changing throughout his career, which I think was another great point. We also discussed around um, the difference between affecting lives and performance. Well, not necessarily the difference, but um, how much of a, a factor that plays in our roles. And obviously we had a discussion around that, like how much are we impacting the athlete's life um, or does it all need to be based on their performance? So I think there's some interesting discussions around it, depending on the, the different age of the athlete, how long we've been working for, the experience we've had with the athlete as well. Um, understanding of individuals, I think was another important um, takeaway from this one. So even though we're in a team setting, we've got to understand each individual and that is a big part of coaching, especially in team sports like football. Um, we need to know the 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 individuals within the team setting and how they react to, to different tasks. Um, and then the other big thing I think I took from this episode was our discussion around intent. And I think for me, I didn't want it to make it sound like we're sort of bashing any work that coaches do, but I think it's a really important factor around just asking yourself why we're doing something and whether we know or the research backs that whatever it is, is the best thing to do at that time. We also have to use our coaching eye, our, our skill as a coach to look, watch our athletes and then determine whether it is still the best thing to do. And if it is, then great. But if it's not, do things need to be changed? And we sort of picked out the example of the warm-up. Um, and I think that there's a, there is definitely something in that that we might have a, an idea on how it how it want, we want it to look and how we want it to work out. But we have to analyse as coaches and, and say like, is it doing that or do we need to change something? So really, really interesting conversation with Stu. I really appreciate him coming on. I hope you took plenty away from this one. 
as always, please give the podcast a share. Share it out to as many different coaches, practitioners, friends, family, colleagues as you can, because I think there's some absolute gold in this one. And again, a huge thank you to Stu for coming on the podcast and giving up his time. And I will speak to you again next week in episode 171.